Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to praise your holy name, for you are worthy of our praise. Let this time be all about you. May our hearts and our minds be focused entirely on you. May we leave behind all the things that we came in here with, the thoughts, the concerns, the worries, and may this be all about you. Move in our lives. Change us this morning that each and every day we might be a little bit more like you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen. When Erica and I got married, she was working as a reporter for the local news station. So we had a news crew at our wedding ceremony. Nice little added pressure. My best friend was performing the ceremony and things were going beautifully. Until the ring exchange. Best man reaches into his pocket, pulls out the rings, drops the rings, and then leans down to pick them up. And as he does, he mutters under his breath, of course. Best friend is wearing a lapel mic. So his mutter under his breath was right into the microphone and thus amplified all throughout the room. Guess what clip the news station decided to use on the local news that night? Of course. Marriage is an adventure. Some moments more memorable than others. But marriage is designed to meet the core need of the, hu of the human heart. So over the last few weeks in our study through 1 Peter, we've been looking at the subject of marriage. Pastor Mark looked at verses 1 through 6, talking about marriage for women. Pastor Rick had verse 7, talking about marriage for men. But because this is such an important subject, because this is so influential, not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with other people, we're going to camp out here a little bit longer, and we're going to spend one more week talking about the significance of marriage. As Pastor Rick mentioned last week, when we talk about marriage, the natural temptation that happens in our minds is that if we are not presently in a state of being married, we kind of let our mind wander, let our eyes glaze over. We think, well, this isn't talking to me. I've been married, not married more. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm probably not going to get married again, or I'm not married yet, so it still doesn't apply to me. And I want to discourage you from that line of thinking, because when the Bible talks about marriage, there are principles in that discussion. There's values in that discussion that can be applied to every human relationship. And so even when the Bible is specifically talking in the context of marriage, it still absolutely has applications and expectations for your life. See, the central need in the heart of every person is just to love and to be loved. And to address this core need of our hearts, God provides two primary ways to satisfy it. The first and most important is Jesus. 
There is no one in this world that will ever love you half as well as Jesus does. And there is no one more worthy of your love than Jesus is. In Jesus, every need, every desire, every yearning of our hearts can be fully and perfectly er, satisfied. In Jesus and in Jesus alone, we can find all that we need. The second of the primary ways that God created to satisfy this core need of our heart is through marriage. Making your spouse the most important relationship you have in this earth. Your relationship with your spouse is more important than your relationship with your children. Gasp, alarm, here's why. You don't have a covenant with your children. You don't have a covenant with your friends. You don't have a covenant with your boss at work or your neighbors or any other human being. The only human relationship that is built on the foundation of a covenant is the the foundation relationship between a husband and a wife. It is the most important relationship we have. And so the Bible spends a lot of time teaching us about marriage so that we can understand how to treat each other in marriage. In church, a biblical marriage is not about happiness. It's about holiness. But the beauty of God's design is that when we pursue the holiness that he instructs us with, we find happiness as a natural byproduct. So we are going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Peter 3, but if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're also going to camp out in Ephesians 5.22. But before we get into that... We need to understand the culture of marriage that existed in the New Testament period. And so for that, we get a glimpse of it in Mark chapter 10, verse 2. It says, And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So, why are they asking Jesus this question? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God instructed his people that if a man takes a wife and he finds some indecency in her, so he's going to send her away, that is, he's going to divorce her, he must give her a certificate of divorce. The reason that this law existed was to protect the woman. What this would do is it would allow, because it would prevent the man from being able to divorce his wife, send her out of the house, and then wait a year till she found someone else and was going to get remarried and then claim she was committing adultery. So the law was just there to protect the woman by saying, if you're going to divorce her, if you're going to send her out and leave her on her own, you need to give her documentation that says that you've done that so that you can't use that to your advantage in the future. But because we are corrupt, selfish people... We take things that were intended for good and find a way to make them about us. See, in our depravity, we have this natural tendency to twist the word of God to suit our own purposes. This was true in the Old Testament. It's true in Jesus' day. It is very true today. We take the verses that we like. We ignore, dismiss, or explain away the ones that we don't. When the word of God doesn't fit with what we want, we tend to change the word, not what we want. 
And that's what's happening here. So there's this allotment given in Scripture, given in the Old Testament law, that a man must give his wife a certificate of divorce if he finds some indecency in her. And so then the debate becomes, what constitutes indecency? What reason are we allowed to divorce our wives over? Now keep in mind, at this time, the wife had no right to divorce her husband for any reason. But because of how corrupt and manipulative people can be, the man could divorce his wife with pretty much any kind of excuse he could find. There was a rabbi during Jesus' day that taught that you could divorce your wife if she burnt dinner. Because that is indecency. Right? She doesn't laugh hard enough at your jokes? Indecency. She takes too long to get ready before you go out? Indecency. She listens to some weird music? Indecency. And you can divorce her for it. And there are no repercussions for doing so. Because at this time, if a man divorces his wife, he doesn't split his estate with her. He's not required to pay alimony. He throws her out and she has only what he deems worthy to give her. Being that at this time, there weren't a lot of things that a woman could do to provide for herself. This was a society in where women were very much at the mercy of their husbands. And so, there is this active, ongoing political debate during Jesus' day as to what does indecency actually mean. And the religious leaders are trying to rope Jesus into this debate. Here's how he responds, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them man, male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus takes what was a political issue and he makes it a heart issue. He says, everything about how you're approaching this is wrong. He says, marriage isn't just a com combining of houses. You're not just linking your bodies together. It is a mingling of souls. You are joining together body, soul, and spirit with another person where two are becoming one. You are being linked. You are being woven together by God, joined together by God. That is not something that is intended to be separated. That is not something that's meant to be broken. It's not something that's meant to end. So Jesus says, marriage is one man, one woman for life. That's God's design. One of the most heartbreaking things about fundamentalist religion is that it looks for any imperfection in our lives and it dumps guilt and shame around them. Well, the elders of the, the first church that I pastored had been married, gotten divorced, surrendered his life to Jesus, and gotten remarried. And he walked around every day with this weight of guilt on his shoulders because his life didn't fit perfectly with God's design for it. He felt ashamed that before he even knew who Jesus was, he hadn't honored Jesus' directions. This was one of the most devoted, loving husbands I've ever seen. And it broke my heart to see him feeling this way about himself because he didn't meet the perfect standard. So listen, John chapter 4 Jesus meets a woman at a well. How many times the woman was divorced? 
Five. You know what she's doing right then? Living with the dude she's not married to. Different problem. Read John 4. Show me a verse where Jesus shames her. Show me the verse where Jesus criticizes her, belittles her, puts her down. Show me the verse where Jesus is like, you know what? You're just a sinful, horrible little human being, and I want to make sure that you feel bad about yourself for the rest of your life because you were sinful before we met. It's not there. Spoiler alert. You know what it is? That woman divorced five times, living with a dude she's not married to, is the first human being on the planet that gets to announce that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? That's the difference between fundamentalist religion and the gospel. Sometimes we forget the gospel doesn't mean guilt news. It means good news. The purpose is not shame. The purpose is not feel bad because you weren't perfect before. Feel bad because you got mistakes in your past. It's here's the truth of God now. Apply it today so that you can look more like Jesus tomorrow. The message of the gospel is a message of hope and peace and joy. It's good news by definition. Well, if it fills you with guilt and shame, that's not good news, people. That's the worst. When we realize, when we hear the word of God, when we encounter his truth, and in that moment we realize there's an aspect of our life that is not aligned with the heart or instructions of God, our response should not be to feel guilty about yesterday, but to be transformed today so that we're more like Jesus tomorrow. God designed marriage to be something that lasts. And so he gives us instructions on marriage, not just so that it can endure, but so that we can make it great. He teaches us how to treat our spouse in a way that glorifies him and honors them. And the beauty of this is when the Bible talks about marriage, Guys, it's never just talking about marriage. So if you're not married right now, if you're not ever going to be married again, there are principles in any passage that is talking about marriage that can be applied to every human relationship that we have. Some of the specific details might be a little bit marriage contextual to marriage, but the general large principles and point of what God is saying applies to every relationship that we have. So if you're not married... He's still talking to you. Because what these passages about marriage are going to teach us is how to humble yourself. How to think about someone else instead of yourself. How to love someone else with the selfless love of Jesus. Guess what? You don't have to be married to do that. That's what it means to be a Christian. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if, he does, if some do not obey the word, which means even if he's not living in a godly way at the time, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. What that means is you present the gospel without even speaking the gospel. That your life and how you treat other people is a reflection of who God is and what God says. And some are inspired and transformed by seeing how you live, not hearing what you say. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, in which, which in God's sight is very 
precious. So don't focus on your external decoration. Focus on your internal transformation. Focus on changing your heart to be beautiful and precious in the eyes of God. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husband as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So wives, your job is to love your husbands, is to serve your husbands, is to honor and respect your husbands, is to put his wants, his needs, his desires, his dreams ahead of your own, is to put him ahead of yourself, is to serve him and focus on him. Gasp, alarm. You know what year this is? This is the 21st century. We're not preaching to the dinosaurs anymore, man. Like, this is the age of empowerment. We don't tell people to serve each other. We don't tell people to submit to each other. This is the age where we worship ourselves, and we worship our selfishness, and we worship our sin because life's all about us. That's what the world teaches us. Focus on yourself. Obsess about yourself. Not serve somebody else. Ick. The Bible calls you to serve your husband, not, as some fundamentalist religious groups have stated, because you are inferior, but because that's what love does, and that's what God calls you to do. And I understand the hesitancy and the frustration that comes anytime the word submit and is referencing a woman because of how this has been abused in the church throughout history. And because most of the guys that read this like to stop reading right there. See, wife, you're supposed to be about me. You're supposed to be what I want. It's supposed to be focused on me. So guess what? We're watching football. I don't know where that accent came from. <clears throat> Likewise. Okay, Pastor Rick talked about this last week. What likewise means is that everything that Peter just applied to the women also applies to the men. Guys, your job in marriage is to love your wife. It's to honor your wife. It's to respect your wife. It's to serve her and focus on her. But her wants, her needs, her desires, her interests above your own. It's to make your life more about her than it is about you. Guess what? Your job is to put her on your shoulders so that she can reach a height that she would never reach without you and so that she can reach a height that you yourself can't reach. That's your job, dudes. Dudes, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Apparently I'm a surfer in California today. I can't surf, I have no balance. That's your job, is to elevate her. And so if you're here like, man, the Bible says I'm the boss because I'm the man. Guess what, guys? You missed the boat entirely. The boat left last week and you just walked off the harbor into the water with nothing in sight. All you are is wet. You missed it. You missed it completely. This is not about who gets to call the shots and who is in charge. The biblical precedent of marriage is that it is a competition between the husband and wife to see who gets to love the other person better and serve the other person better. You are competing to focus on the other person. That's God's design for marriage. It's not about who's in charge. Love puts others first. Love thinks of others first. In fact, Love has a really hard time thinking about itself at all. So likewise, husbands, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. This was an unprecedented statement in human history to treat women as heirs equal to men. That didn't happen culturally anywhere else before this was stated. Heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Guys, let me just tell you this. Your relationship with your spouse has serious implications on your relationship with God. Here's why. She's God's daughter. Okay? So you think you can mistreat her, neglect her, abuse her, belittle her, put her down, lord over her, or express your big macho Tarzan authority over her in a way that makes her feel lesser, and then go to her dad and ask for help? Wake up. It doesn't work. You want God to hear you when you cry out to him? You want God to be there? You want him to listen to your prayers at all? You better take good care of his little girl. Okay? The Bible teaches that marriage is a relationship of mutual possession and mutual submission. It's not a contest to see who gets to be in charge. It's a contest to see who gets to serve and love the other person. Marriage is meant to teach us how to take the focus of our lives off of ourselves and live and love someone besides ourselves. And if you want to know how something is really important, if something is really important in Scripture, one of the best ways to see that is if it's repeated. What's interesting is what Peter says in chapter 3 sounds very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 22, which is, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church, now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, you are called to submit to your husband as you would to Jesus. Let's be real clear here. Your husband is not Jesus. This service too. I really expected to get some amens on that. Thank you. There it is. I'd just like to know that we're not in a library, you know? But you demonstrate your love and devotion to Jesus by honoring and respecting the wildly imperfect man that is your husband, Okay, still nothing. Good. In the name of Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What did Jesus do for the church? He died. He took the sins of the world upon his shoulders. He took our mistakes, our failures, and he paid the price for what we did wrong. So he protected us from the consequences of our sin. He provided for us a means of salvation, of hope, and of life, and he died for us. This is the standard that we are called to operate with. This is how we are called to treat our spouses, to die for them. Right? So there's the the big breakdown, right? You either, wives, you get to respect and honor someone who's not always worthy of respect or honor. Husbands, you get to die. Which one of those sounds more fun? Anybody want to sign up? Switch teams? No? Okay. (laughs) 
Look at how Jesus treats the church. Wildly broken, massively imperfect, constantly turning to the wrong things. Do you see Jesus belittle the church? Do you see him demean the church, criticize the church, put the church down? When was the last time you read a scripture where Jesus got together with his buddies and he made jokes about how the church's place should be in the kitchen? Yet we think that's okay? Really? Just dishonor and shame my wife in the name of good, playful fun. You die for her. That's the standard. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, because he who loves his wife loves himself. This is the best singular application of Scripture, the clearest singular application of Scripture you're ever going to find. Love your spouse the way you love yourself. You know what's so great about that? We're really good at loving ourselves. It's a very clear picture to work off of. We take care of ourselves. We provide for ourselves. We defend ourselves. We think about ourselves and obsess on ourselves and focus on ourselves because we have a real gift, people. We have a real gift at being all about ourselves. And so Paul's application is simple. Hey, take what you do for you. Do it for your spouse. Doesn't get any easier than that. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what does Paul say that our marriages represent? Jesus and the church. Your marriage is the clearest, loudest, most compelling testimony to the work of Jesus in your life. Your marriage is the most visible, tangible demonstration and declaration to the world of the love that Jesus has for his church. How you treat your spouse reveals what you really believe about God. How we treat each other reveals what we really believe about God. Let me tell you a secret. You can call yourself a Christian. You can say that you believe in Jesus and you love Jesus and you follow Jesus. That and like $7.50 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. The statement alone is useless. You want to know what you really believe about Jesus? You want to know what you really believe about God? Look at how you treat other people, especially your spouse. That says it all. Our marriages are testimonies to the faithfulness of God. And a biblical marriage, like all biblical relationships, will be built on three principles. Number one, Jesus comes first. He's the motivation. He's the goal. He's the purpose. You love Jesus first, and you love Jesus most. The moment you put your spouse ahead of Jesus, 
is the moment they become an idol. And you will never love your spouse better than when you love Jesus more than you love them. It seems a little counterintuitive because we give the most of what's first and then it trickles down the hill after that. But when we focus on Jesus, pursue Jesus, become more like Jesus as we seek to love and grow in him, we don't just love our spouse with our imperfect, flawed, broken love, but Jesus empowers us to love our spouse with his selfless, humble, perfect love. You will always love your spouse better when you love Jesus more. Number two, let go of yourself. This is basically the principle for why marriage exists. This is how it trains us to be holy. The purpose of marriage and God's design is to take our eyes and our minds off of ourselves and place them on another human being. Because it's easy in concept to love a perfect Jesus because he's perfect. He's not your spouse. He's not frustrating you all the time. He's not pushing your buttons. He's not making you want to rip your hair out and smack him in the face with a phone book. If you can find one of those. Jesus is perfect. Your spouse is frustrating. Your spouse is going to drive you nuts. It's a whole different thing to love someone in their rampant imperfection. But look at God's design. The beauty of God's design is wives, your job is to serve your husband, care for your husband, love your husband, respect your husband, focus on his wants, his needs, his desires, focus on him. And husbands, your job is to love your wife, is to honor your wife, is to respect your wife, is to, to value her and to lift her up and to protect and care for her. It's to put her wants, her needs, and her desires ahead of your own. And so what happens? The husband meets the wife's needs. The wife meets the husband's needs. Both parties get their needs met. Neither party thinks of themselves. This is the brilliance of God's design. Not only did he give us marriage to meet this core need of our hearts to love and to be loved, but he trains us in doing so to love with his humble, selfless love so that in the process of honoring God in how he designed marriage, we are also learning to live and be more like Jesus. It's perfect until we put ourselves in the mix. So let yourself go. It's not about your feelings. It's not about you it's about loving your spouse the way that Jesus loves you, which is absolutely perfect and has nothing to do with you and how good you are or how deserving of it you are. And number three, persevere. Life is hard and marriage is messy. Uh, my first ministry was in a college town, so I did a lot of marriage, weddings, a lot of weddings. <laughs> And so when I do premarital counseling, there's a question that I always like to ask and then sit back and just laugh to myself. Because every time I sit down with a counselor with a couple asking this question, tell me about how you fight. And every time I get a variant of the same answer, you know, we really don't fight. We just, we communicate really well. We've got a really healthy relationship. I think we just do a really good job of like listening to each other and hearing each other and adapting to that. We just, we don't really fight. We just have this great relationship. And I just think they're so sweet and so funny and she's just so good at being sweet and funny and it just really works for us so we don't. I'm like, yeah, give that six months. 
just so you know, when the, when the little rose-colored lenses that you're wearing come off, they weren't lying to you. You just weren't looking. Okay? So don't blame them for being who they are because they've been this the whole time. You just weren't paying attention. It's messy. And you're going to fight. You're going to have times where the person makes you want to rip your hair out. You're going to have times where they make you so mad your whole body is shaking and somebody's going to wonder passing by if they need to take you to the hospital because you're having a seizure. Nope, you're just frustrated. That's going to happen. Because in a marriage, you're seeing the other person at their absolute worst. And they're seeing you at yours. They're seeing a side of you that you would never show another living human being. You speak to them in a way that you would never speak to anyone else. You treat them in a way that you would never treat anyone else. And it's bizarre because we claim to love that person more than anyone else, and yet oftentimes we treat them worse than anyone else. Persevere. Those things that feel like they're going to tear you apart are the things that create that bond together. The reason you don't show those traits to anybody else is because you knew if you did, they'd walk away. So when you don't walk away, it makes that love different. Not shallow, not cheap, but it's a love forged by fire. Refined by it and made into something precious and beautiful and meaningful. Not because you never had a fight, but because you cared enough to fight through the frustration. They're going to give you reasons to scream, to get mad. I give my once a week. You can ask her. She's sitting right over here. Just look at her while I say this. Once a week, I give her the motivation to give me a paper cut and push me into a shark tank. And that's a conservative average, right? It might be a daily thing more than a weekly thing. I give her plenty of reasons because I am one of life's most frustrating human beings if you have to spend more than 10 minutes with me. <laughs> there it is. Oh, okay. That's, that's fair. Thank you for that. The beauty of the design is that when you apply principle two, Principle three becomes much easier. What's weird about the frustrations and challenges of storms is if you're not thinking about yourself, if you're not focused on yourself, if you're not offended because you're not happy with how something went, it's a lot harder to get really mad. The problems that we have in marriage are the problems that we infuse into it because we can't stop thinking about ourselves. So persevere. This biblical marriage is designed to make us more like Jesus. But how often is that a thought process that we think about? For those of you who are single, right, you got a list, right? Everybody's got a list. That's not just, wasn't just me. You got a list of what you're looking for in a spouse. And for your real solid, mature Christians, Jesus is at the top of the list. They got to be a Christian. They got to love Jesus. You're nailing this thing. I like it. And then after that, you get to the practical stuff. There's got to be compatibility. There's got to be attraction. There's got to be some shared interest. Right? And then you get into the petty stuff, like, I really just want him to be six foot five and really good at dancing and love cats. <laughs> cool. More power to you. 
You know what I've never heard someone put on their list? I want them to make me more like Jesus. I'm looking for someone who's going to challenge me and grow me to be more like Jesus. I want someone who's going to strive to love me the way that Jesus does. It's the most important qualities to look for in a spouse, and yet I've never heard someone express it. Let's take off the marriage filter. Same question. Your friends. The people that you choose to spend, not the people that you have to spend time with, but the people that you choose to spend your time with. Do they make you more like Jesus? Do they challenge you to grow in your relationship with Jesus? Or do you hang out with them because it's easy, because they're funny, they make you laugh? The principles that the Bible gives us for how to make a marriage beautiful and powerful and wonderful should be applied to every relationship that we have. Jesus comes first. Stop thinking about yourself. Put others first. You apply those principles and make them into practices, you start to look a lot more like Jesus. And all of a sudden, people start seeing a little bit more of Jesus in you. And they start wondering, what's the deal? Why are you so different? Why do you live so different? And the answer is Jesus. And then your life becomes the testimony to the glory of God. It may be the very thing that wins someone's heart to him. Marriage is designed to teach us how to live in a way that brings glory to God. But when we apply the principles of marriage to all of our relationships, every interaction becomes an opportunity for us to show the world the love that Jesus has given to us. And that is why we are here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. Despite our wild imperfections, God, that you loved us in our mess and in our brokenness, that you've seen us not just in the ugliness of our actions, but in the ugliness of our attitudes, and you loved us anyway. And for those who are lonely, I pray that they could see all that they have in Jesus, that they could learn that the true satisfaction, that true fulfillment comes not from relationships with imperfect people, but from a relationship with you, and that they would see that you are always enough. For those who are struggling, I pray that you would give healing, that you would stir up a humility and a selflessness to serve one another, to forgive one another, and to grow together for your glory. God, I pray that you would stir in all of us a desire to live for you and to show the world the beauty and the power of your love in how we treat one another. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.